these works always are considered provocative. That's because I'm looking for something that can provoke myself because I just have something in me that keeps telling me, do something that is not boring, that is interesting, that will wake people up. That was Christian Lollica, and this is Nordic Portraits. Preston Lollica is an award-winning, internationally renowned playwright and theatre director who has built a strong reputation for boldly exploring social issues, trends and taboos through his work. In his capacity as artistic director at Copenhagen-based theatre company Sortville, or in English Black White, Preston has successfully combined text, sculpture, concerts, opera, ballet and action art as a means of performance. Preston, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Great to be here. Question, I wondered if we could start by going all the way back to late 2011, where in the aftermath of the infamous mass murder that took place in Utøya and simultaneous bombing in Oslo in Norway, you first had the idea to write a stage play that explored the manifesto of its perpetrator, Anas Bajvik. Yeah. Can you recall what it was that first captured your interest? Yes, I was sitting watching Tour de France, actually, the bicycle race, and I could then see that there's been this terror attack in Norway. And I had just taken over a theater called Café Theater, which was later changed into Sortville. And I was about to do a show, and I was thinking, what is this terror attack in Norway? What is this about? There were so many people killed, uh, 77. And then... I heard there was a manifesto of 3,000 pages and I asked an actor called Olaf Højgaard if we should start reading it and then we start reading it and then we said, okay, let's take it to the room and test how it sounds in order to have some kind of idea of who Anders Breivik was. Do you remember what made you gravitate towards it? I think it was uh, that he was immediately portrayed as some kind of a monster and a psychopath. And then when we read just some of the pages in this manifesto, he seemed like he had a clear political mind and that it was not just a randomly crazy person, but actually it was a terror attack, which he also claimed himself. And then we had to wonder why he was considered as a crazy man and not as a political terrorist. And that's exactly why we chose to put this manifesto on stage so people had a chance to understand what kind of guy and what kind of um, nationalism movement that was going on in Europe right now. Hmm. Obviously, when the play eventually made its way onto the stage, it garnered a lot of critical praise, but was also met with fierce criticism. Could anything have prepared you for the backlash you were about to receive for taking on such a sensitive issue? We were totally totally unprepared we had talked to a guy about what could happen and he had sort of prepared that the media could go crazy for this but i think what actually started it was that the parents to some of the young people who died they have been confronted by a journalist if they have heard that 
there was a theater in Denmark that wanted to put on his manifesto. And then, you know, we were accused for making sort of commercial for his viewpoints. And then it all went mad and the politicians started attacking the theater, saying that we shouldn't do this. And But uh, yeah, we had to try to stay cool and say this is important that we understand what kind of a guy Anders Breivik is and not to consider him as a crazy monster. Was this political debate raging whilst you were still writing and rehearsing the show? I'm just curious as to whether the end result, creatively speaking, was in any way influenced by the furor surrounding the project. I don't know how it influenced, but it certainly did because we had to postpone the production a bit and the conversation or the criticism went on for more than half a year. So it sort of, we kept being asked, when is it coming? What are you going to do? And then the trial actually also started against him before we had the premiere. And then we went up to watch the trial in Norway to also have that as a part of the play. Really? Yeah. So were you present in the courtroom? Yeah. We could follow how he he was throwing shoes at the audience and um, we watched most of it. What did you learn from that experience personally in terms of standing in the middle of this firestorm that you had sparked by taking on such a sensitive subject? At some point, you know, we were threatened, the theater was threatened, we had to talk to the police if it was difficult to do, and I was scared lying under my table in the kitchen, I didn't dare to go home at night and so on. But at the same time, I also felt what theater can do and should do in order to to raise uh, important questions, and I learned a lot about how media works, and in a way... It's so crazy to think that this performance was presented for 50 people every night. No more than that. But I think so many people watched the performance in their head and had an idea of what was going on. So it sort of gave me uh, an idea of how to interact with media when you do theater, which I think is an important part of art and theater. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in that because you very much have become not only the face of the theatre company, Sortville, yeah. but also on a broader level, any theatre that asks questions of society. Are you comfortable in that role or are you becoming more comfortable in that role? <laughs> I would say in a way I'm becoming less <laughs> comfortable <laughs> with that role. But, uh, you know, it's like people sometimes think that I like provocation and so on. Actually, I don't like it, but I just think that's how you should do theatre and I just think that's what theatre should do raise questions and create awareness and take the opposition of different kind of subjects so that we can see them from other angles and that we understand why things are taboo and so on and so on. I think that's how it should be, but I never actually feel comfortable. <laughs> well, Manifesto 2038 certainly put you in an uncomfortable situation. Did it ever get to the point where you seriously considered abandoning the project? 
Uh, I felt the whole time that it was necessary what we did. And, you know, I always question my choices, but I still feel that this was too important, that we could not let the emotions shut down this project. And I think it was important to talk about Anders Breivik's role. And an interesting thing was that you would have Karl-Ove Knausgaard and other writers who would write articles about Anders Breivik, and then you were not allowed to make theater about it. So I was also wondering why is... Why can't you do a theater about this? What is it about theater? And I think that it's considered as some kind of entertainment, and that's one thing. But I also think it's because theater create images so that you actually have someone being Anders Breivik saying his words as he wrote them himself. I think that's a powerful artistic tool that can be useful. I think that was more an answer to an earlier question. But No, no, it's yeah. very interesting. And I guess I was... Curious, more broadly speaking, what informs you creatively on a daily basis? How do you go about identifying specific issues or social trends that interest you? It's a good question. Um, I actually always follow what direction is Europe taking towards nationalism and when it comes to refugees and those kind of questions. And also, who do we consider to be crazy? Why do we consider these people to be crazy? And what kind of taboos do we have as a society? And why are those taboos? That's sort of the questions I keep being interested in. Hmm. Well, I wanted to briefly go all the way back to your childhood. You grew up in Fredericksburg and then moved out to Flolensborg at the age of eight. Yeah. You mentioned in the past that you would classify it as a half-snobbish upbringing. <laughs> what did you mean by that? I just mean it was a small, rich city with a castle that the city is proud of, and the queen is there in the summertime and so on. So it's a very peaceful, upper-class place to grow up. And when I grew up, I remember people were very concerned about having the right uh, commercial brands on their shirts and so on. So... Both of your parents were lawyers, so not necessarily the traditional artistic pedigree one would expect. But I'm really interested in at what point this strong social conscience developed in you, because it sounds like a very insulated and pleasant upbringing that you had. Or were you already being exposed to social issues and injustices at an early stage? No, I was not. You know, in many ways it was very safe, but I... I think maybe it's because I was not good in school and I was not a good reader and I was definitely not good at math either. So I was sort of always attracted to the people who were outside the system. And I've been that ever since and felt that half of myself belongs to them because I was always told that you cannot become anything if you're not good in school and so on. And I was not, so I knew I could not become something in society. And then I, they, then I, I was attracted to the guys who were smoking hash and doing drugs and um, doing crazy stuff. And then I stayed with them, and I think that's sort of where I develop another view on the sort of more bourgeois style of living. Is it true that you would film large family gatherings where 20 or 30 of your relatives would be eating together and then afterwards you would review and analyze the shift in conversation and other dynamics? I once recorded a Christmas because I was always interested in why do we have these superficial conversations? Why are we so afraid of actually 
getting to know each other, getting a closer, intimate situation with each other. So you clearly had this strong curiosity about people and human behavior. Did you feel that that was nurtured and supported at a young age? I think that was definitely brushed over because, you know, it was about what kind of education do you want? So that is something that I came back to later. And as a self-confessed outsider, yeah. when did art and more specifically theatre first enter the picture? Very late, very late. And that's why I still consider myself as some kind of an outsider, even though that, I, that I'm not. But I keep watching theatre people and the theatre environment and receptions and so on. And I always feel weird because I'm among most people for whom it was a big dream since they were young and so on. And I think to me, I just stumbled over it when I was 25, a girlfriend told me that there was this new school for playwrights and I attended the test there and I got in and I was there for three years. And in the beginning, I felt like I couldn't write anything because they all knew how to write, to write plays. But then I sort of started thinking, oh, the theater is an interesting media. I can unfold different things on different levels, work with emotions and intellectual thoughts in this room. Hmm. How would you describe the theatre landscape in Denmark back at the time when you graduated? I think, you know, there was definitely a high artistic level in the Danish landscape, but it was also formed by people who were afraid of having um, political subjects in the theatre because they were from the generation where, from the 70s, so they were brought up with that Marxism and socialism should be introduced to people and they were fed up with that. So they were sort of fed up with political theater and didn't want to go that direction. And I definitely looked at how theater worked in, in uh, Germany. And so I sort of started introducing saying, no, we need to reinvent our ideas of how political theater can be done. What was it in Hamburg and Berlin that so captured your imagination? It was a crazy expressionistic theater where theater was considered as important for being against society or mirroring society and having political discussions on stage. So that was very lively and very expressionistic, crazy atmosphere where shows could be one hour and they could be five hours. It could be the same show having different lengths and so on. So it was just very lively. So how were you received as a newcomer on the Danish scene with these very different ideas? Was it hard to find collaborators early on? I was very lucky that Aarhus Theatre allowed me to, I would say, develop my own theatre landscape at their theatre with their actors. And it was sort of hard in the beginning to convince, especially the actors, of this post-dramatic expressionistic style that I wanted to introduce. But then later on, it became easier and easier. One of your earlier works definitely established you as a controversial figure within the theatre scene in Denmark, and that was 2004's Domo Oskri, or Judgment Over Screaming. What was it that drove you to the subject matter of masculinity within the context of gang rape incidents? I was actually just standing in a pizza bar reading about this gang rape and I read that the girls you have had sex with two or three of the guys both alone and together the weeks up to this gang rape. 
there was some kind of another kind of social order than her being a victim, being dragged into some place and then being raped. There was something else going on and I wanted to investigate what rules are there among these young people where this suddenly happened and why wasn't it, you know, how could it happen that day and not any of the other times when she was there with them. So on a practical level, put me in your shoes. Once you've read that article yeah, and you start to think this has piqued my interest, there could be something in this. What are the next steps in terms of exploring that subject matter? Yes. Then I think I start thinking what is the most interesting viewpoint. And often I like to hear the ones you condemned. So I start, okay, how can I give the boys a voice And then I invented some kind of a, I started to listen to rap music to get that rhythm and tone into my dramatic writing style. And then I just wanted to hear them talk and talk and talk. So I gave them a language in which it wasn't there. I wasn't imitating real life, but I was giving them another kind of language where they could say something surprising. And that's sort of always what I'm up for. I'm always looking for how can these characters say something that will surprise me and how can I choose an angle towards a subject that will surprise me and that's why these works always are considered provocative that's because I'm looking for something that can provoke myself because I just have something in me that keeps telling me do something that is not boring that is interesting that will wake people up so I start giving them the voice of this new sort of poetic rap language. And then later on, I gave also her a voice. I gave her mother a voice. And then I have these bricks and then I start combining them. Hmm. So how malleable or open to change is your script and creative vision? How much, for example, do the actors and other collaborators you work with have an influence on the final outcome? I think I'm very collaborative, but I always set a direction that we should follow. But I know how much fantasy there is among the people I'm around, whether it's actors or set designers. So they influence the text. I change the text until the last day. And often it's when the actors start taking over, they come with suggestions. So in many of my texts, other people have written in the text as well. I'm fascinated by this because you've said in the past that more often than not, you haven't written the ending by the time you're in rehearsals. Yeah. How does that work? Uh, I sort of feel it's boring if I know exactly how it should end. So, you know, it's some kind of investigation of a topic that develops while it meets the room and it meets the actors. And I don't know exactly where it should end. I have some kind of points. I just made a film and, uh, you know, I think that's what kept me away from the film industry was actually that you are always forced to know exactly how the ending should be. And now I've learned to sort of write an ending, but I always think we don't know because when things come to life, then we follow where things have been taken. How much can you anticipate whether the notes you want to hit emotionally are going to resonate with the audience. I can imagine the tone can feel very different when you're suddenly performing in front of a live audience versus having rehearsed for weeks or months to an empty venue. I would say, you know, I always test the performances with the audience and then I adjust things. I sort of feel that I can sense the audience and then I can decide 
if I want them to be left cold or to be totally engaged or to be provoked. And, you know, in a way, I've always considered theater when I started was sort of always in the dark and the actors were playing to each other. To me, theater has always been closer to a rock concert. And that's why you are playing with the audience just as much as you're playing with the other actors. So the audience plays an important role. And how do you know where to pitch the tone so that you're not just dismissed as this contrarian who is being provocative purely for provocation's sake? I feel I have to uh, have people engaged, emotionally engaged, and you have to play with the audience. And also I use humor a lot. You know, I think that's a way to sneak something in. And then you can surprise from there. And then you can totally change the tone. So I like that you can seduce people and then you can play with their emotions. So what then is the ideal response from an audience member? What would you want someone to walk away with? I like when they walk out and I can feel that they have felt sort of a highness, that they feel high, but at the same time, they wasn't sure What was it? Was it good or bad? Were we allowed to see this? Was this too much? Those kind of questions I like. You have in the past been very successful at not revealing your own personal or political views in the public forum of debate. Has that been difficult to keep your cards so close to your chest when you're constantly being asked to comment on your own work? Mm. In a way, not, because I really think my viewpoints are in the work I'm doing. And at the same time, my work should surprise myself as well. It's true that I sort of stay away from the debate because I really don't like to be framed as, oh, he's left-winged, he's right-winged. And that, that frame how people see the work. And I think it's important that they come without knowing what I actually think or believe in. So is that a sign of failure if one of your plays has not managed to garner any public debate? No, actually, I think curiosity has been sort of my motor more than debate. So that's why I've worked with dancers and the Royal Ballet and with opera singers and with rock bands and so on, because I feel I have to reinvent myself and the artistic language that I'm working with and i can only do that if i work with strong people with other languages that i can combine with mine hmm. you mentioned artists operating in other fields do you ever feel let down when other artists are not politically inclined or overtly active i no i wouldn't say that i would say that to me it's more if people who do art are too safe and too predictable and want to be liked that's what i hate the most you know i like when people are taking their things to some kind of edge and whether it's political or aesthetically that's not so important they have to risk something mm. how do you deal with not being liked uh yeah that happens sort of all the time that some like it some do not You know, you have to be, you have to say you don't care. <laughs> you do, but I'm curious whether there are certain people in your life whose view matters to you in terms of gauging whether it's been a success or not. I actually, I hate always that I care so much about what the critique says and so on, because in a way, 
I don't care and in a way I know how much it forms other people's viewpoints. So I care too much about criticism and I always hate that I care too much and I always have to fight it in myself to get back and to say I don't care because otherwise you become not free in how you work and that is the worst. So you just have to fight it. But when you put your heart and flesh on stage, which I feel I do, then of course it is hurtful when... It is being criticized or people are accusing you for having certain um, intentions and so on. So what are the success criteria for Christian Lolliger? It's uh, sometimes I'm being asked to come out to a high school and talk there. And all the time when I'm going there, I'm thinking, oh no, why did I say yes? I shouldn't have done that. And then you have young people at 16, 17 coming to you saying, oh, it meant so much to me. It opened this and this for me. You know, that means a lot. And it means a lot to sit among the audience and that you can feel that your work is doing something with them and that it's changing something in their body, actually. And you can feel that in the pause and after the show. And that is, that is, <laughs> that is worth doing it for. Yeah. Does the temporary nature of theatre appeal to you? The fact that you have to experience it undistracted, engaging with it personally, and you can't then just take it off a shelf 10 years later and revisit it? I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that, but that's the condition of that art form. But uh, yes, so now I'm changing into film to have something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for good or for worse. That film hasn't come out yet, exactly. Christian. <laughs> that might that might haunt me the rest of my life and I wish that, <laughs> that it could just disappear like a theatre play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Christian, about this common mantra that all art is political? Yeah, I hate that. That was sort of what I was met with, that phrase in the beginning from the generation before me. And I think that is too escapist. Uh, I think political art must be very specific and be driven by some kind of anger. But it's so interesting because right now the generation after me, they are accusing me for saying, oh, you are saying that you're political, but you do not show your viewpoint. And I think that's very interesting. And I like that they are after me. But my problem is that I cannot do things that are too clear on what is meant. Hmm. This immersive research that you undertake when you delve into some of the darker behaviours in society, I could imagine it's hard not to judge people, but I presume it's vitally important to your process that you don't cast any judgments? Yeah, it is, because then you lose them. And somehow we are all... uh, (laughs) We all are very dark. (laughs) And not because you have to be a good person. You just have to always realize that humans are humans and they contain so much shit, some of them. And you have to just stay with them and see it from their side and listen to them. And then you'll become wiser on your own life. And that's why we have to hear them. Yeah. Well, if we refer back to Anas Bajvik as an example... Did you emerge from that project being able to relate to him as a person? I think it was quite easy because in a way, you you know, he has his diaries there. You can read that he considered himself as highly intelligent, which he is. You can see how much he worked for this. You know, it's sort of impressive. 
And of course, he killed 77 people, but to follow his step into... He knows that he has to change his mind in order to be able to kill. That's why he isolates himself. He knows that he has to only play these video games, only to read these nationalistic, far-out people. So in a way, it's such a conscious way of manipulating himself. And he's doing that deliberately in order to be able to do what he ends up doing. And so in that sense, he's very uh, intelligent and you can also understand that he was left by his father that he never felt recognized and he has such a strong urge to be recognized for something and now so many things have failed for him and then he wants to be recognized as the greatest terrorist in our time. And, you know, I, I don't think that's so hard to follow and understand even though that is so cruel and evil. So what do you think it is about the human condition that we want to put people in these boxes and so quickly dismiss them yeah i think we we want to protect our own self-image as being good and decent people and i think that often hides another kind of truth <laughs> do you wish for a society where these taboos were eliminated completely no i guess taboos to some extent are necessary i just think that it, it's not like there should be no taboos at all, then, then <laughs> it would be pure anarchy, and I don't believe in that. But we have to keep investigating our societies. Why do we have these rules? Why do we go into a war in Afghanistan? Is that because we really believe that the democracy should be... Uh, is that really our mission, or do we have other kind of desires? And we have to look ourselves <laughs> in the eyes, and otherwise history will judge us. Hmm. You mentioned Afghanistan. One of your most iconic productions was Ifulin, or In Contact, in 2015, where you were collaborating with the Royal Danish Ballet to create this form of war ballet. Yeah. It incorporated ballet dancers, but also ex-servicemen, many of whom had lost limbs in battle. I was just wondering how you landed on that concept and what story you were trying to tell. I was invited into the Royal Theatre and they asked if I could do a piece together with them. And they had 25 available dancers. And then I said, I don't know much about ballet. And then they start, oh, ballet is about being angels, reaching for the sky, leave your humanity in a way, being very elegant. And then I said, okay, but then we have to do something that is very specific, very down to earth, very... Um, political now also because i think it's important to find out where you are and you know when you are at the royal theater you speak to a certain kind of people also even though that a lot of people come there but there's power in that so i said that we should do something about war also because the similarities of how disciplined the bodies of the dancers in the ballet are compared to the soldiers sort of two languages where they are both very far from each other and very alike. So there was some kind of opposite positions that was interesting to mix. And then in the cantina, I saw people without limbs and I asked and they were going to Pilates training. And then I realized, okay, we should have them on stage and tell their story and 
tell why they wanted to go to war in Afghanistan and what they learned and how they trained themselves to be able to kill because those questions both on the individual level interest me and also, you know, how do they justify themselves when they actually see that the mission is more or less meaningless because what they do one day is tear it apart the next day. Hmm. What was the response like when you as an outsider enter this new arena of the world of ballet and the Royal Ballet at that How did the public respond to it? Uh, it had a very good response. I think people actually felt that they understood the soldiers' desire to go into war and also understood how brutal the whole situation was. And at the same time, it was still dance and it goes into your body in another way than words can do. You mentioned the importance of being able to tell different stories from various viewpoints on stage. There are some people that would say, for example, with your recent reinterpretation of Aladdin, that you're not of Middle Eastern descent, you're not a Muslim, so how can you tell that story? We are living, obviously, in a world where outrage culture is really prevalent. How do you respond to that sort of criticism? Um, I, I'm really, really, really fed up with this wave in many ways. You know, it's good to raise questions on how many foreigners is there on stage and in the productions and so on. There's a lot of questions that we have needed to bring up and it's good that they are being brought up. But this whole idea that you cannot go into the experience of other people without having been there themselves, that you have to have this and this ethnicity in order to tell a story from that viewpoint. I really don't like it. The first play I wrote was a play for old people, you know, who were 80, and I was 25 when I wrote it, and I've never had anyone saying that I needed to be 80 to be able to write for them. I think that's what art and poetry adds that it creates worlds and own rules in fiction where you don't need experiences. Experience is one thing, but it is not necessary to have personal experience in order to live into someone else. I think that's the whole idea about art, and I think it's very dangerous when we start saying that you cannot know how I feel, and I think we will only move apart from each other if that ideology wins. So in your opinion, are there any boundaries at all that art should adhere to? No, I would say there are no limits. It's all about how it's being done and that it's well-researched and that it creates its own artistic or poetic landscape in which it becomes something in itself, where it is sort of a truth in itself in which we can mirror ourselves and society. Mm. An obvious recent example of that would be Black Madonna, which originally had the N-word in the title. You put that show on in 2018, just as Black Lives Matter was reaching its apex as a movement globally. That was obviously a bold step, creating this production with your collaborator, Madame Nilsson, yeah. who herself went out on stage in blackface as part of the performance. Unsurprisingly, it sparked a fierce debate. I'm curious what your experience was of that. I mean, Madame Nilsson and I read the story of Rachel Dolezal, who apparently was white and wanted to become part of a black movement. 
And then she claimed that she was Afro-American herself. And um, that was our starting point. You know, if Madame Nilsen, who had had a different kind of identity herself, what would uh, happen if she told that story, the story of her? And that included also changing your skin color on stage. And to me, and I know it's sort of a controversy um, thing to say, but I think there's, you know, I cannot imagine how you can do a story like this without browning your skin. And at the same time, I cannot understand how you can tell a story about how the N-word was used in old days without using the word. I think it's very complicated. And, you know, how will you tell about minstrel show? Is that from now on and until when? Forbid. I think it's a big problem that we have invented new taboos and I definitely understand the history behind it, but I find it difficult if art is not the space where you should deal with these questions and where there should be no rules. And I think it's hard when we live in a time where we always have to be on the side of good when we do art. I think it's the wrong approach. And as a result of that, I believe you had an on-stage conversation with the leader of the Black Lives Matter movement here in Denmark. Was that a constructive exercise? Were you able to find any middle ground or was it just very difficult? I don't know exactly who was there at the debate, but many of them or most of them have not seen the show. So they were just against the whole thing. And I totally understand, you know, we had a poster in the beginning with the N-word and that was a mistake and we uh, took that away and I think that sort of started the whole thing in the wrong way and in a not very elegant way and we had to apologize for that and that's totally fair. But I think the production and the performance and the piece itself was interesting and was actually mirroring the discussions that we still have now. In that sense, I think it was an important piece. Hmm. Beyond just the world of art, do you think Danes are generally willing to have uncomfortable conversations and embrace having healthy debates about social issues? It definitely depends on the subject. And you can say when it comes to these kind of questions, I I like to stay with the approach that the Danes don't like. And there are definitely too many Danes who are we don't want to change anything and I should be allowed to say whatever I want and blah, 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 blah. And I don't want to defend that either. So in that sense, there's a certain kind of stupidity that you have to definitely try to enlighten. But on the other hand, I'm not into having trigger warnings on everything and so on. I think we need to dare to step in to uncomfortable rooms and have the debates openly. You've said in the past that you feel that one of the weaknesses of the Danish theatrical scene is that its leaders or members are not very open to international collaboration. That seems to still be a very strong passion of yours. Definitely. Definitely. We are definitely not very good at bringing in other influences in many different cultural aspects, I would say, in our society. That's a great weakness and it's uh, very stupid. How have you tried to change that you know in my own work i keep inviting other collaborators and mixing different things and i have a theater and we try to have international guest plays and so on and you're always surprised when people coming from outside 
presenting new aesthetics, asking why are you doing things in the way you're doing it. And it's just, that's why it's so important to bring in people. Hmm. Can you tell me a little about the production Living Dead, whereby you depicted refugees as zombies? I found that to be a fascinating angle on the issue. What was the genesis of that idea? I was fascinated that we have human rights. And at the same time, when it comes to refugees, it's like we forgot actually what does it mean it was just a nice thing to say where we can feel safe and good about ourselves. And I do think, you know, in many ways, I have worked with and I have friends who've come from different kind of countries and they come to a new country. They are totally drained. They have nowhere to go. And they are definitely considered as zombies by the, <laughs> by the local zombies, you know, because they see them picking up bottles and being for many, many, many years in refugee centers. So they tend to look like zombies by the local zombies. And I made that picture of those two groups because it's also zombie-like to sit and talk about human rights and these words where you have sort of lost the meaning. And at the same time, I really are not into sort of a lefty, clear position where you say, oh, we should take in all refugees in the world. You know, it's like, of course, there are limits and anxiety being created that are so counterproductive. So it is a dilemma. You cannot have a, I'm clear on this stand because then you're not in a way responsible. Hmm. How do you keep your curiosity sharp? I think from meeting people and working with artists that come from other areas and keep looking for new medias, new forms, new languages. I worked with AR and VR and these are so new in many ways and so not yet developed, I think. But I think it's interesting for me to find out, okay, what can I tell in this media? What are the advantages? Well, the younger generation who are the true digital natives, how do you think they view theatre today? I think post-corona, they actually are intrigued by flesh and bone and they are having so much on their different medias. So I think there's a revival for theatre through that. But, you know, theatre also have to meet them and how they tell story and how... But I think... People miss the concentrated, almost church-like room sometimes where there are no medias and you have to concentrate for a longer time and that you experience something that is not the same the next day and might never come back. Yeah. Well, from the uniqueness of theatre to a completely different art form, you mentioned earlier that you're now in the process of dipping your toes into filmmaking. Yeah. I understand the film's not out yet. It's still in post-production. But I'm just curious, what has that experience taught you so far? I think me working in films, I would say that I work so much with intuition. And in film, you have to plan so many things so well. And if you go over time, it costs so much money. And um, in a way, I've been surprised how easy it was, but that was definitely because I was surrounded by very experienced, very good people because I definitely also felt like a 
big clown <laughs> not knowing the language why are they doing this why does it take so long time to change position why is there so much uh, waiting time and so on and so on and in the beginning i kept teasing all the film people for talking so much about food because coming from theater you're just so much poorer but you know standing in the roadside for 10 hours with the cars driving by in rain freezing then you sort of understand why you want <laughs> the food to be good when you <laughs> come back at night yeah no i'm not done with understand what i've learned but i've just experienced a new medium and a very powerful one so i'm very much looking forward to keep working with that you don't strike me as someone who is afraid to step out of your own comfort zone no I'm not. I'm afraid of being bored with staying in my comfort zone. That is definitely what's driving me. Do you ever reflect back on your work and feel that you've perhaps taken the safe option, creatively speaking? Um, yes, I think definitely there's some performances that I've done where I feel too comfortable and I can feel that I can do it without using all my powers. And then I feel like, oh, I shouldn't do that because... <laughs> then it's boring you know i want to challenge myself and i want to do something where i think oh this might go completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> i've read in the past where you've said that you don't tend to involve yourself heavily in the work of the actors on an emotional level what did you mean by that if it's on film i need to see what is the picture I see it as a picture and the same on stage, you know. So all this talk about emotions and how do you feel and why do you feel that way, I sort of tend to leave that up to the actors to find out more or less by themselves. If they need inspiration, then I try to help them. But I look for pictures first and not for emotions. How do you think your actors would describe you as a director? I think hopefully they would consider me as playful and intuitive, but not always with the clear plan. I, you know, I change things a lot and I know that can be frustrating for some actors who are prepared. They know exactly what they will say. And then I'll come up just before we say Vasco, then I'll change the lines and I keep editing also. We keep working until the last second with each scene and we change words and we change approaches and so on. So it's very experimental all the way through. So are you someone who is able to down tools at the end of the day and switch off from work when you go home or are you constantly analyzing and rewriting things 24-7? I'm constantly working. I cannot let go. And... I have the fortune of, you know, I, I, when I put my head on the pillow, I sleep in 10 seconds. Yeah. So that's my, my luck because the rest of the time I wake up very fast and I always like, okay, what are we working on? This is what we're working on. Okay. What happened yesterday? Blah, 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 blah. And then I'll go. And what about your private life with family and friends? Are you able to switch off at all and talk about other things or is it all blurred? I have a family and they think I'm hard to <laughs> to talk to <laughs> because it takes so many seconds before I answer. But uh, but they're still with me, though. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that question. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I very much enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Good question. Thanks. <laughs> 
Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.